Our God and Father in heaven, as we um, take this psalm upon our lips as a song that we must sing, teach us this morning how it is that we sing it as those united to Jesus Christ. We pray it in him, we sing it in him, and indeed we sing it for him. And so we pray that by the power of his spirit, that spirit of sonship working in us, we might be able to say these words, to mean them, to pray them with conviction, with integrity, and with honesty. And so I pray you would help us to hear what you are saying to us through this psalm, through this song this morning. In the name of Jesus, and for the sake of his glory and his kingdom, we pray. Amen. Now, it wasn't that long ago that um, public intellectuals who were atheists, that is, sort of non-God people, people who don't believe in God, were actively opposed to Christianity, and they considered it a kind of malign influence. Think of Richard Dawkins' poisonous invectives against the Christian faith that believing in Jesus Christ and God is just the same as believing in fairies at the bottom of the garden, or something like that. Christopher Hitchens um, the late Christopher Hitchens described himself as an anti-theist, so it's something of a personal mission not only to just not believe and let people be people who do believe, but to actively oppose Christianity, to try and root it out, to say that Christianity, along with other forms of organized religion, um, were malign influences, they were bad things, genuinely bad things for society, and that life would be better when it was eradicated. Well, we're now in a slightly different age, it feels, or at least there are some slightly new voices that you can be listening to. Um, the new, new atheists, or at least the new, new non-theists, take a slightly different approach. Think of someone like the historian Tom Holland, not to be confused with Spider-Man, um, but Tom Holland, the, uh, the historian, who has written, um, he's admittedly an agnostic, not an atheist, but his recent book, Dominion, is a book all about the extremely positive effect Christianity has had upon Western society. That equality, even things like gay rights and um, everything associated that we associate with dignity, with the integral decency and value of human beings and that that should be protected, Tom Holland says that is only explicable because of a Judeo-Christian ethic. The influence of Christianity upon Western society has meant that these things which we now take for granted um, and that are very important cannot be understood without recognizing what Christianity has done. Others have said that even if you don't believe the gospel, still going to church and promoting the moral values of Christianity is a good thing to do. We need it as a society. Um, Douglas Murray, the author and journalist, calls himself a Christian atheist. He, he almost wants to believe in Christianity, he just doesn't himself, but he still thinks going to church is a good thing, that even the morality of the Christian faith is a good thing, which if, if you know about Douglas Murray's personal life is an interesting thing that he's saying. He almost wishes that he did believe, but at the very least he says we need Christianity and its whole package of beliefs and everything else that goes with it in order to have moral order that we crave. Society needs the moral leadership of Jesus Christ is kind of the undertone of some of these new, new atheists. Um, all of this is really interesting, potentially quite helpful for uh, the church and her witness to the gospel, and yet it's not quite enough, is it? Or we might say it's not right. One writer who's particularly interesting in this regard is a guy called Niall, or Neil, 
Ferguson. I'm not quite sure how you say that, but uh, sort of look at the Celtic folk around the room to see whether I'm saying that right. But Niall or Neil Ferguson, he's a Harvard historian who takes this approach that I've been um, mentioning. Western society generally benefits from broadly Christian ideas. Um, however, he seems... He seems to be positive about the idea we can basically generally benefit from these ideas without needing to buy up to the whole package ourselves personally. And here is how he puts it. Viewing Western civilization with its Christian soul cut out, many are now willing to say we need Christ. What they are unable thus far to say is I need Christ. We need Christ, but do you need Christ? Do I need Christ? That seems to be perhaps where more and more people are at, or maybe just more and more of the people that I read and listen to, I don't know. It's kind of the opposite of the I'm spiritual but not religious idea. That kind of slogan says, yeah, I believe in general spiritual things, some kind of spiritual force that's out there. I just don't want to give it any kind of concrete face like Christianity. This new, new wave of atheists says, I'm religious, but not spiritual. Organized religion is actually culturally beneficial. I just don't need to believe personally that it should impact me and the way that I live. Why have I started with that? Well, our psalm this morning is a song of strong moral leadership. It is the song of a king who says, I'm going to be a king of integrity and honesty and decency. It is a, strong of, a song of strong moral leadership, and actually you can hear the song on these two kinds of different levels. On the one hand, we have the king who wants a good moral order for his society and his kingdom. We need this king. But as we'll see, actually, with all the Psalms, they are to be taken upon the lips of all of God's people, in fact, we might say all people, this isn't only for political or societal leadership. The commitment to ethical perfection that is being sung in this psalm should actually be a song that is on all of our lips. It should be sung by everyone. But the reality that the Bible presents to us, the reality of the world as it is, is that we can, in fact, only sing this song, pray this prayer, when we are in Christ. Even hearing the song sung, hearing the psalm read should push us to say not only we need Christ, but I need Christ. And the thing is, that's as true for the Christian, an ongoing need, as it is for the non-Christian. Only in Christ, by the power of his life and his death and his resurrection, can anyone, even King David, pray this psalm. We can't just say it and sort of hope for the best and really sort of gee ourselves up to some good moral performance. No, no, we can only pray this psalm as those united to Christ, as those who are in him. Only then can we say we, we lead this blameless life, verse 2, that is going to enjoy the life-giving presence of the Lord. So it is, of course, a psalm of David, David, the king of Israel, chosen by God, a man after God's own heart, um, to lead the nation of Israel. Israel was um, what we call a theocracy, which means it was a God kingdom. In fact, it was the visible kingdom or the visible um, presence, as it were, of God's very kingdom on earth. And so Israel needed a king who would explicitly follow the living God. Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, kings of Israel were told they needed to read the law, 
to learn the law of God, almost to have the law of God indwelling them as they live. They needed to explicitly follow and worship him. The king of Israel should be a man who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this obedience to the law wasn't just because God is some grouchy so-and-so who likes to have people do what he says, but because God's law is the perfect pattern for life and flourishing. God's law is actually really, really good for people. And so a king who is committed to the law leads a society that is committed to the law, and therefore the people do well as a result. So a king who applies these principles of God with wisdom will see his kingdom flourish as a kind of cause and effect sort of pattern. But not only that, God had entered into a covenant, a kind of special personal arrangement with the nation of Israel, um, a covenant that promised blessings, that promised the enjoyment of the very presence of the life-giving Lord upon the condition of faithfully loving and worshipping God as the one true God. And the king of Israel was the one who should exemplify, who should be the best at doing that, at offering that love and that worship to God. He was the head of the people. And so the fortunes of the nation of Israel were bound up in the performance of her king. As the king goes, so the nation goes. The king's own relationship with God um, had a material impact on whether the nation itself would enjoy God's blessing, God's covenant presence, and so on. And the reason why I say this and why this matters for us is because, therefore, the king is not just in the category by himself and everyone else does what they want. The king exemplifies what everyone should be like. Back in the beginning, humanity was created with a kind of kingly or queenly responsibility to faithfully worship and love God, to lead all of creation in, um, with perfect integrity towards God in worship. The king is special, sure, but that doesn't exclude all of the people's duties to live with integrity and obedience before him. Back in verse 2, I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? Tying together here that blameless living and being right with God, enjoying the life-giving presence of God, those two things go together throughout the scriptures. So, to reiterate, this is a song for the king. It's like his personal mission statement as he sets out on his reign. It's a manifesto of the policies that he is going to implement during his enthronement. And remember, it's a song. It's sung with commitment. It's sung with feeling. David means this, or he should be meaning it as he sings it. And he's saying, this is how things are going to be with me. I think maybe, I don't know if that... that time in a musical when a character is kind of setting out on what they're going to do and sort of sings that song and says, I'm going to own this. I'm going to sing it. It's a big vision, but I'm going to step into it and own it. The level of my sort of cultural sophistication is <laughs> the only example I could come up with is The Lion King. I'm going to be a mighty king, <laughs> you know? I'm going to be a mighty king um, uh, like no king was before, brushing up and looking down, working on my roar. So I needed to finish that line. We, so this is the kind of we need Christ. We need the mighty king to lead society well. And that's what David is saying. As the king, I'm going to be a mighty king. Here is my manifesto of kingship. This is what I'm going to be like. But it is also a song for all of us. Yes, there are particular ways it might apply to leaders in the church, might apply to leaders in the, the household of God. We've been, been paying attention over the last few years. We've seen how men in church leadership who have not tried to pursue this have royally messed up those under their care as well as their own ministries. Um, 
But as we'll see, we can only sing this song if we belong to Christ. But then you flip it around and, and make that sting in the tail, that point that we're going to be getting to at the end of the sermon. If we are those in Christ, we should therefore be singing this song. This song is not a kind of, well, Jesus has done it for me. So, spoiler alert, this is where we're going. Jesus has done it for me, so everything's good, and I don't need to think about pursuing this kind of life anymore. No, it's Jesus has done it for me, so everything's good, and therefore, as one united to the risen and ascended Jesus Christ, this should be the life that I pursue as well. And I show that I belong to Jesus Christ by taking this song upon my lips and saying, this is my manifesto for living to. Royal faithfulness belongs to the sons and daughters of the king as well as the king himself. So let's have a, a quick look through the psalm then. Um, as we say or sing the psalm, what is it that we're putting on our lips that we want to hear echoed in our hearts? Um, well, perhaps as it's often the case, it's, let's begin with God because that's where the psalm begins and ends. Look in verse 1, I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord, I will sing praise. And then in verse 8, um, I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. The name of the Lord is mentioned at the beginning and at the end. He is the context in which this song is sung. The moral brilliance that this psalm is committing its sayer to is one that is linked to the Lord himself. Why is that? Well, simply because the call to purity, the ethical uprightness that this psalm has within it, isn't some kind of abstract ideal. It's not just some list of things that God has made up arbitrarily because he fancied it. No, faithful, pure human living is rooted in our identity as those who bear the image of God. A heart that is singing um, the love and justice of the Lord, because that's what David is doing, he's singing of the love and justice of the Lord. A heart that is singing that, a psalm that praises God for the love and justice he has therefore shown to his people, is a heart that will want to replicate, copy, manifest that same love and justice in a human life. It will say, that is my God and therefore I'm going to live like him. So verse 1 looks up to the character of God. I will sing of your love and justice. And then verse 8, that link with the name of the Lord again, looks ahead to the time when the city of the Lord will be pure and clean and holy. Both of these verses then pull us to the fact that we are to be holy as the Lord himself is holy. That is the call, that is the claim, not an abstract set of rules but a call to live out in human lives the perfect character of the living God. So this is the commitment then of the Lord's King and therefore the commitment of the Lord's people and yes, points us to the Christ we all need as well as the one that we need personally. We need a leader who wants to make perfect divine love and justice the very melody of his kingdom. That is, that is where uh, verse 1 and verse 8 put us. And then you kind of get to verse 2, and this is the banner or the headline again. I'll read it out again. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? 
that yearning for the presence of the Lord, means that King David says, I will be careful. I will be deliberate. I will be, a word I don't often like or use, but intentional about being blameless. This is his election pledge, if he were to be elected, which he didn't need to be. But nevertheless, this is his pledge. This is his manifesto commitment. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. This is what David is singing. I'm going to be a blameless king. Not primarily because of the benefits it's going to bring me and my kingdom, although there will be many, but because in doing so, I get God. When will you come to me? And this is at the heart of the entire good news of the gospel, that we, we don't just want nice and good things in our lives. That is not the promise that God makes to his people. The promise that God makes to his people is that we get him. The central promise of the covenant that God makes is that he will be our God and we will be his people. He himself is life itself. He himself is the one who is perfect love. And he offers himself to us. And David is singing that, I will lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? That is what I want. I want God himself. And that is a good thing to be singing. That is a good thing for the king to be committed to, desiring God's presence as its own reward for living in his way. So those are some of the big kind of headlines of the psalm. The rest of the psalm then is David saying how he's going to pursue those things, living out the love and justice of the Lord's own character through a blameless life, being careful to live a blameless life. Well, what does a careful approach to leading a blameless life look like? Well, he, he goes through various ways um, uh, that he's going to approach this, and I'm not going to spend time dwelling on all of them. Perhaps you might want to, after the service, have a look at one or two of the I wills of this psalm and just say, which one of these I wills am I going to focus on? Maybe take one away and think about it. I, yeah, th this is an I will that I'm going to focus on um, and, and say, what is it going to mean for you in your life? What I want to do now is, is just kind of approach it under two general titles, just to give a flavor of the kind of thing that he's saying. And those two titles are this, action and influence. Action and influence. What I mean by that is that David moves between the things he's going to positively do as part of his mission to be God's man, God's king, and the things that he is going to allow to influence him and his thinking and his life as he does so. And I think there are three points where he kind of positively says, this is the action I'm going to take. The second half of verse 2, verse 5, and verse 8. These are three positive commitments to action that David says, this is what it's going to look like to be the mighty, righteous king. So, verse 2, the second half of verse 2. I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm going to live in my household with integrity. I'm not going to do things behind closed doors that are at odds with my public profile. I'm Now, for the king, his household includes his administration, his court, and things like that. But it will also mean his family. The way he lives with those literally in his house and the way he lives with those who are related to him. Maybe it will look like faithfully teaching his children the faith and how to live well in the world. 
It might look like honouring and respecting parents, whether they're lived with or not, or treating housemates with selfless care and service. Even behind closed doors, in the privacy of his own home, the king is saying, I'm going to conduct these affairs with integrity. I will live in this way with a blameless heart. It means basically the private life of anyone called to this kind of royal faithfulness is honourable and good and pure. So that's the first kind of commitment to action David has taken. The second one in verse 5, whoever slanders their neighbour in secret, I will put to silence. David here is committing to upholding the honour and dignity of those outside his household now, in whatever context that might take place. He says he's not going to engage in gossip. He's not going to engage in speaking poorly about someone. And not just that, he's not just going to kind of hold back from doing those things. He's actually going to speak up in favour of those who are being slandered. He's going to speak up in favour of those who perhaps are voiceless or who can't defend themselves, who are getting a bad deal behind their backs. David has no problem losing face in front of his peers if it means he can protect the honour and integrity of people who can't defend themselves. And he links it with the fact that people who do that, who speak badly about others behind their back, do so from selfishness, do so from, from pride, he says, people who aren't committed to the good of their community. The person seeking to lead a blameless life cannot just be focused on themselves or even just on their household. They need to look outwards to the community they're part of and to see themselves as responsible for the good of that community. Obvious application for us is here in St. John's, speaking up and saying, no, we will be a community that speaks well of one another, that says good things about each other, even behind um, each other's backs. And then the final commitment to action, verse 8 Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now at this point, David is quite obviously speaking as the king. The king had a responsibility to hear um, judicial cases, to act as a judge, to administer justice, to punish wrongdoing and and reward good doing, well doing, whatever it might be. Uh, promoting justice, protecting the innocent, that kind of thing. And so this royal pledge that he makes here is a wonderful one. I'm going to root out evil people. I'll make sure that injustice and oppression and exploitation and all of those kinds of things will not be tolerated in the city and in the land that bears the name of the Lord. This is, of course, verse 1, the love and justice of the Lord being put into action in a human context. And it's all right for David. Of course, he's got the power of the king to do it, but you don't need the power of the king to be able to put these kinds of things into action in your life. With whatever resources are available to you, the person living the blameless life that aims at enjoying the Lord and imaging his holiness will desire to put into action an opposition to injustice and hatred and oppression and the like. Within the church, wanting the weak and marginalized to be cared for and included outside the church, hating the many ways in which those who cannot stand up for themselves are exploited, are treated poorly, who keep finding themselves at the mercy of those who only act in self-interest. Ultimately, what is being expressed is a heart for a world in which suffering and injustice are no more. That is what David is committing to here. So these three positive actions in those verses. But David also takes an active approach, move from action to influence now, um, 
he thinks about the influences that he is going to allow in his life in this psalm. And that's kind of the gist of the rest of it. He is resolving to refuse and resist the influence of evil in his life. And the, the kind of theme of sight is really important here. So in verse 3, I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. So it's kind of saying, I'm, I'm not going to put before my eyes. And here it's not literally just his physical eyes, but, but the eyes as the focus of your life, the direction of your heart and your desires. He's saying, I'm not going to put them towards anything that is bad, that is against God's purposes. But verse 6, my eyes, my gaze, what I'm looking at, my focus and my vision, well, it's going to be on godly people. It's going to be on good influences. It's going to be on good examples, he says here, of godly living. Jesus spoke a bit about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the eyes are the lamp of the body. And he was speaking about sort of in the broader context of money or God. So if your eyes are fixed, Jesus says, on money, then actually that's going to make your, your body, your entire Christian life sick because you're going to be aiming towards that, living for something which is not going to give you life. And that's what David is saying here. I'm not going to set my eyes. I'm not going to look with approval. I'm not going to focus on and allow myself to be influenced by something which is not pursuing God and his purposes. And so he says, I'm going to hate the things faithless people do. He's going to put himself away from evil and perverseness. Verse 7, he's not going to let people in his house who lie or deceive him or encourage him to deceive others. Double speakers will not be tolerated. But as I said, in verse 6, he's going to look to good examples. He's going to put mentors and people in his life who set a good example of what righteous, holy, good living means. As a political leader, he's not going to surround himself with cronies and flatterers and people who are only out for their own interest and not the interest of the people he's caring for. No, he's going to surround himself with women and men of integrity and decency who will challenge him and offer robust correction and guidance and help. Why make a point of this? Well, living the blameless life, the good life, this ethically upright life, whatever you want to call it, is not only a matter of resolving to do the right thing, but making sure that we're taking in good influence. Paul, in uh, his letter to the Philippians, says, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is good, and so on, think on those things. We need to take an active, positive step towards making sure that what we're taking in is good for us, because we're very pliable people. We're very easily swayed and influenced, and we need to make sure that the things that come in and affect us, because everything is going to affect us, is going to be in the pursuit of living this righteous and godly life. You can't just say, well, I'm going to do the right thing, focus on the good output. David here is saying, I need to focus on the input too. To, to switch to a physical well-being metaphor, you can't out-train a bad diet. Trust me, I've tried. If you're eating pizza and M&Ms three times a day, it's wonderful and glorious for about a week. I've never actually done it quite a lot. I made sure the M&Ms were different colors. You know, you need balance and variety. Um, but if you're doing that, however much training you do, you're not going to be able to out-train what you're taking in. And David is saying something similar here. You can resolve to do all the good you want, but if you are allowing yourself to be influenced, if you are putting before your eyes, and this doesn't mean just, you know, switch off all TVs and screens and never look at the world around you again, but it's saying... What are you allowing to influence you? What are you saying, this is going to be something I'm going to follow, an example that I want to imitate in my own life? 
David is saying that the righteous life requires a positive step in saying, I will fill my gaze with what is good. And he uses strong, ruthless language about cutting evil people off out of his life. And of course, literally, if you were to cut off all sinful influence from your life, you'd have to cut off yourself. You know, you go away and live like a hermit and you'll find your own thoughts will still be your worst enemy. But what he's saying is he's going to deliberately resist those things which will pull him away from the Lord's way. Well, that's a quick run through of the manifesto of the righteous king. And the thing is, if you know anything about the life of David, then you'll realize as he sings this song, you can't help thinking, I say you, I can't help thinking of that next bit in the Lion King song, I'm going to be a mighty king, so enemies beware. Well, I've never seen a king of beasts with quite so little hair. Like, this is, this is the kind of, as you think about David's life in light of this psalm, that's that king of beasts with quite so little hair. What a pathetic kind of matching up to reality. And the Lion King, of course, this um, tiny little lion cub, when the reality of life hits him, realizes he, he's got nothing to back up the song, has he? He's got nothing to kind of fill out the vision that he's set for himself. A friend of mine who knows quite a lot about the Old Testament is writing a little book on David. He said that in Hebrew narrative, in Hebrew stories, the first words that an individual speaks are actually really deliberately put down to tell you the kind of character that they are going to be, okay? And so you look in 1 Samuel, what are David's first words in 1 Samuel? Find them in chapter 17, where he's facing Goliath. And the first words that David says are, what shall be done for the man who beats this Philistine? His second word is, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? The first words that he speaks show the kind of character that he's going to be. As you see David's life kind of work out in the story of the Old Testament, you have this, these kind of two sides to him. Yes, he's a man zealous for God's glory, a man after God's own heart. And, and there are Psalms where David said, I've, I've lived a blameless life, I've done good things. And of course you say, yes, of course he has. They're, relatively speaking, he's done lots of good. And yet there's always this other side to him. What shall be done for the man? What do I get out of this? self-centeredness, self-aggrandizement, selfishness, self-interest, adultery, murder, protection rackets, slander, lying, bad household management, a whole host of things. And you say, really, David, you're going to make Psalm 101 your manifesto for your kingship? We have these two sides to David, and even the ones who come after David are tainted by the very same problems. And no leader in history has matched up to the ideals, the standards of integrity, decency, and perfect justice in this psalm. Um, make no comment about the leaders of today, but of course we know we see private lives undermining public confidence all over the world, let alone in this country. Decisions and attitudes and influences that do not ultimately aim at human flourishing, but keep stability fragile and uncertain. David's life in light of this song shows us the need of course, for a better king. But also, we personally feel the tension. We need a king who lives like this, but also, I need a savior who is like this. When we sing this song or pray these commitments, even if we were to measure our own lives by our personal ideals and principles and commitments, we fall short of even the standards we set for ourselves on a daily basis. But when we measure by God's standards, how much further short do we fall to love God and love neighbor without fail or faithlessness? 
As we see in this psalm, outward actions are not enough. Jesus used the example of a bowl. In Matthew 23, he's speaking to people who could say, yes, I do really great things. I lead a really good life. And he says, you're like those who wash the outside of a bowl, but inside it's still dirty and full of mess. And that's not just true of the Pharisees he's speaking to. That's true of all of us. When we say this psalm and really try and mean it, we realize we cannot say it truly and honestly if we were to look at our own lives and say, this is me. Yes, we need a blameless Christ as a society, a moral leader who can set a good vision, but I need a Christ who can save me from my failures, from all my sin, from all my willingness to lead a life of half-hearted love for God. And of course, when the Son of God became man, when he became Jesus Christ, this was the song that was on his lips. But unlike David, it wasn't just a statement of good intentions. This is an accurate accounting of every second of his life. Even as he sat with sinners and tax collectors, as he had his arms around the dregs and outcasts of society, he never kept his eyes off his heavenly Father, pursuing righteousness, pursuing the good every second. He had no truck with the influence of evil people, but he didn't run away from them. He had a kind of forceful, contagious holiness that meant he couldn't be overcome by anyone or anything. And just look at verse 8 again. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Now you read the end of the book of Revelation and you read a vision of King Jesus who executes that kind of justice in the sort of scenes that would only be able to be shown in a film rated 18. And yet during his life on earth, he offered a way in which we would not face that kind of execution, that kind of judgment by being executed himself. He was cut off from the city of the Lord. He was executed outside the gates of the city of the Lord, not because he deserved it, but because we did. And he took that judgment for us so that we could be saved. And now it's easy to leave it there, in one sense quite understandable. Hallelujah, Jesus has done this for us. I never could, praise God. End sermon, go home. Nearly, don't worry, just one minute left. Not only does Jesus save us from the consequences of our actions, Jesus saves us from the power of the sin that makes those actions happen in the first place. The Apostle Paul said that I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But here's the crucial bit. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. By faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. And as those united to him, this life, this Psalm 101 life, should be our life too. And so we pray it, we commit ourselves to it, not because we can do it in our own efforts, but because by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God transforms every part of our lives more and more into his likeness. And so we sing, I'm going to be a mighty king or queen, as we say this psalm, and it seems like they're shoes that are too big to fill. But as we pray it in Christ, our feet grow bit by bit until one day we will enjoy the presence of the Lord in the city of the Lord in which all evil and suffering and injustice are gone forever. So what I want to do now as, as we finish is I want to, us to say this psalm together. 
to pray it as those who are in Christ, and to pray it committing ourselves to a life of Christ-likeness as those united to him. If you're not a Christian here this morning or you're not sure where you're at, then you can say the psalm too, but feel the weight of the commitment that you make as you say these words and maybe just come back to that, that thing I mentioned at the beginning. We can recognize that we as a society need Christ. But I want you to know this morning that you need him too. So let's all say this psalm together and feel the weight of what we're committing to and know that only in Jesus Christ can we say these words and mean it and own them for ourselves. So of David, a psalm, let's say the whole thing together. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. The perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose way of life is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Amen.